Let's thank our musicians and the technicians and the children's workers and all the folks that make today's possible. <clears throat> it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, I've been asked to remind you that the uh, women's Bible study on the Psalms will be happening this Saturday morning, so ladies, pay attention to that. And also, as usual during the service, the prayer team members will be back in the corner if any time during the service you feel like you uh, need to have prayer with someone, uh, please feel free to get up and make your way back there. They'll be happy to spend some time in prayer with you. It's always good to get a chance to give Corey a break from things. And you know, I've said before up here and need to say it again, this has been a tough couple of years, especially for church and for pastors. And uh, Corey has uh, done a great job of it, and we want to appreciate him and uh, David also for all they do with us. Thanks. Uh, I'll be continuing the theme this morning of uh, looking at the gospel and daily life issues, and I'm going to be talking about uh, the gospel and mission. That may seem like singing, talking to the choir for some of you, but I hope that by the end of it, you've got a different perspective on what mission is all about and how it really does impact our everyday lives. It's not just about having a passport and going halfway around the world or making a special trip. It is those things, uh, but it's bigger than that. Uh, uh, please join me in prayer, and then we'll get started. Lord, we've come from all kinds of places with all kinds of baggage this morning. Some of us are joyful and want to give thanksgiving, and some of us are sad and need comfort. Some are troubled and don't know what to do. Some have gotten bad news they don't know what to deal with. But we know that you're the Lord of all and can take care of it, and so we give you the time today. Uh, despite our plans, you do what you want to do with today and in this time. And I pray the things I say will be true and point to you. In Christ's name, amen. I forget, I can't read anymore. <laughs> the place is Pennington. It's a sleepy little village in the middle of England that was a Roman colony. And God did something remarkable there. A poor, uneducated cobbler named William Carey decided to teach himself Greek so he could read the New Testament in its original language. And soon he was preaching and teaching on a regular basis. But something about him was unlike most of the other preachers around him. There was a peculiar fire in his belly that had been fanned by the reports of Captain James Cook's explorations in the Pacific. In 1792, he published a little pamphlet with the awful title, an inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathen. That's very attractive, isn't it? You want to be part of that. <laughs> Later that same year, he, he met with others who shared the same kind of fire he did, and he helped organize the British Baptist Missionary Society. And soon thereafter, he and his family left for India. Not only was the mission work hard, he was opposed by the British East India Company and soon was forced to move to the Dutch colony of Serampore, which is near Calcutta. And he served there until he died in 1834. He translated the whole Bible into the six main dialects spoken in India at that time. 
He founded Serampore College. He worked for social reform, especially on behalf of children and women. And he opposed and fought the ugly caste system that was at work in India. Kerry's been called the father of the modern missionary movement. Missions would energize and divide churches on both sides of the Atlantic. But by the middle of the 1800s, most American denominations were sending missionaries all around the globe. Kerry did not invent missions. It had been smoldering on the back burner for a long time. When Christianity became the official state religion about in, in the fourth century, passion for mission began a decline. If you lived in the Roman Empire, which was most of the known world, and certainly all of it that really counted as far as they were concerned, you were a Christian. So what was the point of mission? And besides, the hyper-Calvinists would later assert that if God, that, that God could and would save who God wanted to with, with or without human interference. So there was no point in it. But Carey argued that the biblical task of missions was still valid, that, that the mission imperative given in the New Testament was intended for all disciples in all times, not only for the original disciples in the first century. Spring forward 150 years to another British missionary. Leslie Newbigin arrived in India, and he also served 40 years like Kerry. But he survived to return home to England after he retired. And when he did, he saw his homeland through the eyes of a missionary, and it stunned him. He began teaching and writing his concerns for mission in what he saw as pagan Western culture. <clears throat> when he died in 1998, he left behind almost 50 books and pamphlets which still inform and challenge us. Newbigin saw the heathen were not only halfway around the world in exotic places, they were also among us in our so-called Christian homelands. And his missionary eyes saw our hidden idolatries of power and wealth and politics and personal freedom as clearly as the Hindu idols that he saw in India. And he concluded that the mission imperative for Christians was not only about faraway lands and strange religions. It was urgent for the church to assume a mission posture with our own Western culture. Our cultural arrogance blinded us to the reality that we were Christian in name only. Newbigin laid the foundation for the contemporary missional church movement and has been called one of the most decisive influences on the theology of mission in the 20th century. His questions and observations led Western Christian leaders to think about mission in a new way and to read the Bible with missionary eyes. And when we did that, we concluded three things. First, that God has always been ascending God. The words mission and missionary are from the Latin meaning sin, simply. Unfortunately, the way business and military and education and other places use the word mission, it obscures that fact. 
They use the word in a different way than we do in the church and in the New Testament. God has always been sending. It was not an innovation of the New Testament. And the mission belongs to God. It's not ours or just a program in the church. The second thing was that it's God's redeeming love for all of creation that's the motivation for mission. The field is everywhere, and the need is everything, and so the task is everything. Our easy text for that is John 3, 16 and 17, that many of us memorized, for God so loved the world. Unfortunately, the Greek says, for God so loved the cosmos. God loves everything, and Christ came to redeem everything. Everything that there is around us is the concern of God. The third thing is that God made the church for mission. Every Christian is a missionary, and every church is a mission station. Now, if those three things make you think of Corey's benediction, you're not dismissed, you're sent, go and be the church, then you got it. You understand what this is all about. All of us are missionaries, and the mission field is wherever we happen to find ourselves during the week, and the mission task varies with our gifts and with the need at that time. And so today I invite you to look at some of the implications from Jesus' commission as given in John 20 and how mission impacts our lives every day. Let's look at that. John 20, 21, and 22. This is the first appearance of Jesus to the disciples after the resurrection. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. When we speak of the Great Commission as the imperative for mission, we usually think of Matthew 28, 18 through 20, something many of us that grew up in church had to memorize a long time ago. But that's not the only commission in the Gospels. Mark has one. It's in chapter 16. And Luke has one. It's the end of his gospel and at the beginning of the book of Acts. And this one from John that we just read. Each has distinctive language and emphasis. The commission that's recorded here in John is especially powerful because it's short, it's direct, and it's clear about what's implied in the other gospels. Jesus sent the disciples, sends us in the same way that he had been sent. Now let's unpack that idea just a little bit. The Greek word that Jesus used to describe his sentness is apostle. Now that should make our ears perk up. We know that the original disciples were later called apostles. They had been sent by Jesus. But apostle also implies being sent on behalf of someone else, often someone with diplomatic status. And so the sending authority in this case is not a political leader or even a church leader. It's God himself, God the Father. It's important for us to remember that, being, that, that our being sent is by the direct authority of God. Mission is not some human invention to give the church something to do or a humanitarian program to civilize the world or a political strategy to impose our culture on others. God is ascending God. Mission is part of God's being, and God defines what mission is all about. This passage tells us that the Trinitarian God sent Jesus as the model missionary. 
Now that's both simple and startling for us. It's simple because we weren't given an instruction manual for how to do mission. We weren't given a YouTube link that we could go to and watch and see how to get mission done. We were given a flesh and blood model to follow when it comes to mission. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But Jesus as a model missionary is also startling and terrifying because we know, I hope, that we are not Jesus and never can be. We're not the authors of salvation. We do not have the power to do any, everything, and we're certainly not part of the Godhead. We are so limited in comparison to Jesus. How can we possibly do mission like him? And that's in this passage too. Because we're given the Holy Spirit in, in a way that's reminiscent of the creation story in, G, in Genesis, Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit into his disciples. The fiery spirit of creation and Pentecost informs and energizes our mission efforts. In this short verse, the gift of the Spirit is directly connected to our sending by Jesus under the authority of the Father. And so you have the entire Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, deeply involved in mission from this one passage. God is all in when it comes to mission. If we're sent by Jesus in the same way that he was sent, then I think it's important that we understand how Jesus was sent. And probably the best explanation of that is found in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, where Paul says, in your, relationships with, with, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. This remarkable passage teaches us how Christ, the model missionary, was sent. The incarnation. We can't possibly do the justice to this whole passage today, so I'll just pick out a few things that are relevant to mission in our message. God's mission is really what the incarnation is all about. God took the initiative. God, or Christ willingly accepted the challenge. And the ultimate barrier was crossed, the barrier between divine and mortal, between infinite and finite. God in Christ proved that no barrier was too great to cross for the cause of redemption. As Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, God was in Christ reconciling the whole cosmos to himself. All of creation, from the smallest subatomic particle to the grandest galaxy, is being redeemed, reconciled by the mission work of God in Christ. And that work is not done from a position of overwhelming power, but began with a posture of humble obedience and solidarity with creation. Christ set aside his divine rights 
in order to stand within creation and to embrace humanity. The enormity of that. The preacher in Hebrews says that Christ is not too proud to call each of us brother or sister. Christ claims kinship with me and with you that can only be explained by God's infinite redeeming love for all of creation. Now that has real implications for each of us individually and also for the church. The Apostle Paul asserts that our posture, our attitude should be the very same as Christ's. We are being sent to others bearing the image of Christ to join them in their circumstances as a brother or sister. We're not superior morally, economically, or culturally. There's no place for self-righteousness, shaming, or coercion. Mission begins with me knowing my place. Whether my, with my neighbor or halfway around the world, I am sent on mission in humility as a brother or sister. And that humility includes the realization that God is already there. I don't take God any place. My mission is to discern how God is in that place already and what God is up to and how best I can join God in that task, in that place right then. And that humility also includes a learning spirit. What is God teaching me in this situation? What can I learn from this brother or sister? What new eyes do I go home with to look at my own place to see things differently? See, mission work is not about success or conquest or glory or entitlement. Mission work is about incarnating, about embodying the gospel in our time and our place. And we get changed in the process. It's not only about us changing others. And our last question this morning is, so how did Christ do mission? Well, Jesus declared his mission work in several different places. And because God's mission in Christ is comprehensive, any one passage leaves out something out. But, but Luke 4, 16 through 21 is especially powerful. It's been called Jesus' inaugural sermon. The setting is, he went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went to the synagogue as it was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found a place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now Luke recorded that 
Jesus read the first two verses of Isaiah 61. I think he probably read the whole chapter. That would have been more typical and more expected of the time. Isaiah prophesied during the exile, the the darkest days of Israel. And, And the first chapters of Isaiah are all about judgment and how Israel has failed. But chapter 61 is near the end of the Isaiah scroll where Isaiah begins prophesying about return and restoration. And the overarching theme there is the year of the Lord's favor. In his preaching, his prophesying, Isaiah reached way back to the days of Moses when Moses gave instructions for the Jubilee, a Sabbath year. That's found in Leviticus 25. It was to be a year of restoration, and it was supposed to happen every 50 years. Now, if if you have a cell phone or a tablet, there's a button hidden away in settings, or your device may have a tiny hole in the back or on the side that you can stick a paper clip in. You may have already discovered that. It's the reset. When everything has gone haywire with your device and you can't fix it, you finally give up. There's nothing else to be done. You press the reset button. And the device becomes like new again. Memory is cleared. All the things you've done to screw it up are erased. And now you can start all over again. The device is like new The year of Jubilee was like a periodic reset for the people of God. Land would return to its ancestral owners. Debts would be forgiven. Prisoners would be released. Slaves would be set free. Everyone would get a fresh start. Now, there's no evidence that Jubilee was ever practiced, but Isaiah saw in the idea an image of the exile coming to an end and a fresh start for Israel. But he also expanded its elements to include compassion and feeling and, and healing. All this would happen because I, the Lord, love justice. That's in Isaiah 61.8. That's the whole motivation behind the, the year of Jubilee. God's love of justice. And Jesus chose this passage from Isaiah to announce his mission to his hometown. In effect, Jesus says, everything is messed up. And God is hitting the reset button. Now, the effects of sin and disobedience, greed and disease will be erased. God's justice will take its rightful place. I have come to declare jubilee. And of course, everyone was elated. They loved the idea. At least until Jesus goes on to explain that God's jubilee was not only for Israel, but for the Gentiles too. And then they were mad enough to kill him. You see, Jesus' mission was about announcing and embodying an expansive view of of Jubilee, a cosmic reset. God's justice was being established. 
God's mission or Jesus' mission was every bit as pervasive and comprehensive as sin. And that's why he preached repentance. And he also restored sight to the blind. That's why he healed the crippled and also warned of sin. That's why he spoke of economic justice and also the wages of sin. Jesus announced and embodied the good news of God's jubilee for every area of God's beloved creation and was obedient in that mission even to the cross. As his missionaries, that's our task also. And it's overwhelming. It's easy to find an excuse to decline Jesus' invitation, even while we say we love him. For about 15 years, I went fishing in Canada with a half dozen other guys. We would drive to Sioux Lookout and then fly another hour or so farther north to a remote lake to spend 10 days or so. It was a long drive. And one of our rest stops was at Two Harbors. That's a, a little town just north of Duluth on the shores of Lake Superior. And there in that unlikely place, the last of the world's largest steam engines is on display. Old number 229. It was built by the Duluth Masabi and Iron Range Company in 1943. It weighs almost 600 tons. It has eight pairs of driving wheels, almost as tall as I am. The engine and the coal tender are almost half a football field long. In its day, it could pull over 100 cars loaded with iron ore over the Mesabi mountain range down to Duluth and the docks to be shipped off to Detroit. One run would consume almost 30 tons of coal. And today, that marvelous machine sits under a shed on a short strip of track and goes nowhere. It's a museum piece. It's kept on display, but even under the shed roof is beginning to rust from misuse or disuse. Despite the rust, it remains massive and impressive, but it does nothing. It was designed and built for powerful work, but the boiler's been drained, the coal tender is empty, there's no fire in the belly. There's something sad about no longer fulfilling its purpose. Existence loses its meaning. Like Engine 229, each of us has been created and called and equipped and sent for a purpose, but we forget that. Day after day, life is a frenzy, frantic frenzy of activity. We accumulate stuff, money or debt, experiences. We shuttle kids here and there. We can hardly catch our breath but we keep running because none of it is satisfying. I betray my age by referring to a song from 1977. It may be old, but 
Jackson Brown's running on empty still captures the way many of us experience life. Looking out at the road rushing under my wheels, I don't know how to tell you all just how crazy this life feels. Look around at the friends I used to turn to to pull me through. Looking into their eyes, I see them running too. Running on, running on empty. Running on, running behind. Running on, running into the sun. But I'm running behind. I think all this running is about searching for meaning in our lives. Our frantic search for meaning latches onto idols that pose as meaning. Idols like jobs and money and status, even family. But idols, regardless of what they are, cannot give lasting meaning. Eventually, we run on empty, and the fire goes out. In John 10, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Some of us memorize it as that you, that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And abundant life is not a life filled with lots of stuff or an overflowing calendar. An abundant life is a life filled with meaning. And I have lately come to believe that mission gives meaning. Sending us on mission is God's great gift of abundant life. It's fired by an eternal flame. Awakening day by day with the realization that we are on mission, sent and empowered by God, gives meaning to our lives. We are confronted with mission opportunities daily, whether we travel halfway around the globe to engage another culture or visit with a neighbor across the backyard fence, whether we preach the gospel or share food with a family in need, whether we fight for justice for the oppressed or pray with a discouraged stranger, it gives meaning when God is in it. You have been sent. Carrie was wrong about one thing. Mission is not an obligation. Mission is God's gift for eternal, abundant life. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that you've promised us abundant life. And we pray for your forgiveness for the times that we've neglected that great calling and that great privilege. Lord, rekindle in us the fire to do your mission, that may, we may enjoy abundant life with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.